Hey there, we're the Westlaw Pirates and welcome to the show. We're here to share thoughts on Northwestern athletics and college sports with thoughts and analysis from the visceral to the statistical. We run our tailgate with the red pirate flag flying high above as we give no quarter, especially the fourth. I'm Sam Walter. I'm John Lacombe. And I'm Eric Skoskowspo. Well guys, um, it's game week. Uh, we were here yesterday talking about the Northwestern defense, uh, doing our deep, deep, deep dive on uh, the Northwestern defense. We're here today to talk about the Northwestern offense. Um, it's going to be a very interesting discussion, and I, I, can't, I can't wait to, to get into this because there's, I, I think there's quite a bit to talk about. Um, before we do that, I just want to you know, say, hey, if you're, like, if you're new to the show, welcome. Um, subscribe uh, on your podcast viewer of choice. Uh, that definitely helps get the word out. Give us a five-star rating. Um, you know, spread the word. Uh, we put a lot of work into this, and we'd love it if you guys could share it with a friend, uh, someone else who might be interested in getting a little Northwestern, I guess a lot of Northwestern previews and, uh, and our, our thoughts. So um, appreciate you for, for listening. Thank you for uh, you know, being with us through the off season, through the, through our, all of our summer previews. Um, and, you know, we're going to be previewing a game here, here in the next day or two. And uh, we'll actually have something to talk about something on the field. Now, a lot of the questions we have going in are going to be answered. And uh, I'm definitely looking forward to, to getting some of those answers and uh, see what we'll be able to get against Nebraska in Dublin, Ireland. Um, uh, yeah, I was, I was going to say, I want to add the one specific thing and a special hello to all of you on Aer Lingus flying across the Atlantic Ocean right now. You know, think of us sitting at home, managing our families as you, as you jet across those magic seas to, to go to a foreign country to watch a football game and take in the sights. Uh, we are, we're with you all in spirit. And Jill, friends. We're, yeah. yeah. Ra- raise, a, raise a pint of Guinness, you know, enjoy a Jameson or whatever your beverage of choice is. Um, or one of those little bottles that they give you on the... Sure. Or, or if your you're tray. listening to this wandering the streets of Dublin, you know, that, yes, yeah. you know, could be doing that as well. So yeah, we are here to talk about the Northwestern offense, um, a position group that has been much maligned over, and, and rightfully so over the past several years. Um, you know, this Northwestern team did not go to two Big Ten championships on the back of its offense, uh, but the offense was able to get enough done to ride the amazing defense. But, uh, you know, it's, it's another year. Uh, we've got lots of questions. We got some, a lot coming back. Uh, Scuzz, you want to you know, lead us through this conversation? Yeah, so I'm you know I'm gonna start with last year. We're gonna we're gonna retrospective a little bit here because I think it is informative to what um, what may or may not be possible in in 2022 and what my expectations uh, are for the offense. But I, you know I came into last season cautiously optimistic that you know under the under the guidance of Bajakian in his second year after what felt like a year with you know more downfield throwing and um, a little bit more um, explosiveness on offense that, and you could continue to build on the success from 2020, despite, you know, having heavy turnover at QB and wide receiver, et cetera. Uh, I thought they'd at least be able to match production with what had been, you know, the third best offensive year for Northwestern since the start of the Thorson era, but what was ultimately like not a great offense in national ranks. Like I think, I think Northwestern was still in the, in the nineties. 
Um, so like the idea that we could match that production was not far off with what we've you know generally seen from Northwestern offenses in years past. Uh, my thesis was based primarily on, like I mentioned, Bajakian in year two, uh, Kurt Anderson in year two, um, incoming talent uh, on the offensive line, a lot of diversity in the wide receiver core, despite all the turnover. And frankly, Hunter Johnson having um, a great athletic pedigree, uh, both as a runner and a passer compared to Peyton Ramsey. Uh, I also said the following, quote, it's certainly possible you could see this offense fall off. If Hunter struggles with turnovers and decisions and Holinsky can't pick up the system, we could be looking at a wing T offense going through Andrew Marty. A key injury or two on the offensive line could negate the advantage of that unit, and the running game could be anemic. Could be anemic. And I could be completely off base regarding the wideouts. So, so this is all your uh, fault, guys, is what you're saying. Yeah, pretty much, right? Um, <laughs> now, I quickly dismissed that downside case, something that I will not do again this year, but it also highlights how last year on offense was a catastrophe across multiple levels. And in, and in a sense, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Um, I think what is most frustrating to me, and this dovetails directly with what you heard from from yesterday's pod on the defense, is that the coaches completely failed to anticipate, adjust, or adapt in the face of these failings. Now, due to recency bias and the collective lobotomy that we all gave ourselves in December of 2019, you, like I, may be surprised to discover that production-wise, the 2021 passing offense for Northwestern was clearly better than in 2019. Uh, the stats the stats are undeniable. Uh, an additional 60 yards per game average, uh, fewer turnovers, far better completion percentage. We were 50% complete in, in 2019. Uh, Michigan State, Duke, Nebraska, Rutgers, and surprisingly Iowa, we threw for over 250 yards in each one of those games. In contrast, the highest single passing game output in 2019 was 184 yards versus Purdue. Uh, wow. More concerning, yeah, right. That's it's stunning how bad 2019 was, and we've all we've all conveniently forgotten. Oh, I I've, I've completely erased 2019 from my memory. Yep. Um, I you know what was concerning though last year the run game really fell off, and and yes, part of that was the defense um, giving up a lot of points and Northwestern being down in games, but uh, and 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 some of it certainly was the injury to Cam Porter before the season, but. I also felt like Northwestern just really lost their sense of identity on that, on that side of the ball. It's funny when you, you think about identity and you think about comparing juxtaposing 2021 to 2019, I think one of the things that Northwestern fans are so familiar with, right. Is that if you're juggling quarterbacks during a season, things are probably going really poorly. That's, and <laughs> I think the, but the, the, the one piece of that, and this is the important point that Scuzz makes is that there are, degrees within that right I mean that there are right that like everyone's going to lump those offensive productions together and in reality like 2019 is about as bad as you can get honestly it may not even be I mean again I I, I think of the the uh, even the aforementioned that 2000 season that we talked about off the top yesterday right go and look at what the 1999 quarterback juggling situation looked like train wreck um, so, I mean, and there are degrees, um, there, there are Nick Kreinbrink, you know, everybody. R- oh yeah. yeah r- I mean, and none of it, none of it good. Right. Was, um, was Gavin Hoffman still? A no, part he of was gone. He was no, gone, he was gone by that point. Um, but, but you know, it's like, it's, it's not what you want. You want to have 
settled on a guy for better or worse and be be going forward from that but i mean so again it's like there are degrees the bottom line is you don't want to be in that situation hopefully we won't be this year so going back to some of those um those thesis points i had you know one is i thought the offensive line would improve uh and they didn't they really struggled last year now they had low marks in the advanced run stats coming off of 2020 i chalked some of that up to the new scheme you know COVID, obviously but they were also like they were effective when they needed to be, especially late in the year once once Cam Porter uh, emerged as a really dynamic inside-outside runner. Uh, unfortunately, they did not improve very much in 2021. Uh, it was a very similar you know, kind of rating across the board. Uh, what also killed them, in my opinion, is that while Marty was a very gifted runner, uh, he did not have the exceptional timing or eye of Peyton Ramsey. Um, and, and in a similar way, Hunter Johnson was, was very uncomfortable running the ball and Halinski is not a mobile guy. So like in, in light of 2021, Ramsey's performance in 2020 looks almost even more incredible to me. Um, and, and specifically in how, and, and more importantly, when he would decide to attack with his legs. I mean, there were so many critical conversions. There's that, there's that third down conversion uh, against the Buckeyes in the, in the national championship game. There was a play against Wisconsin. Like he, he was just, he was so critical in, in certain moments um, using, using his legs to great effect. And despite what I would argue is, you know, better athleticism from, from two of our three QBs in 2021, they were not able to um, to match, you know, Ramsey's feel for the game and um, and and his uh, take, you know, the, the way he would take advantage of those moments. Um, frankly, I'm very concerned about this again in 2022, but uh, we'll get there in a minute. You know, not not having Cam Porter was also painful. I, you know, Evan Hall was a wonderful and unexpected boon for Northwestern last year, uh, but while he has incredible speed through the hole and, and vision to cut. He's just not the same inside-outside mold as a Justin Jackson or or or, or Cam Porter. Um, as a result, we rarely saw the outside run last year behind pulling linemen. That was just it was so devastating in 2020. It was super devastating in 2018 as well. Um, I guess you know more, more concerning here is the lack of production we got from either Claire or Tyus. Uh, you know, Claire had a really good average, frankly, um, but just didn't get that much usage and. You know, Tyus, I think, showed a couple flashes, but he was almost relegated to running out of that extremely predictable wildcat formation. I mean, yes, it did some damage on jet sweeps with, with Stefan Robinson, but, you know, it, it just kind of underscores this this sense I get that with the running game, I wrote down abandoned. I don't know that the coaches abandoned, but it's almost like they didn't know what they were working with coming into the year. Like, Cam went down early in camp. So this is one of these like maddening examples of lack of anticipation by the coaches. It was early enough in camp that, you know, they should have been able to be nimble enough to make the the proper adjustments, right? Yeah, yes. Well, when on top of that, Evan Hall had been on the roster for 3 years. His speed was a known commodity. I mean, how could it not have been? But he only carried the ball 10 times against Michigan State while averaging close to 10 yards per carry, I might add. And most damning of all, only got 10 carries in the loss to Duke. I'm twitching. This <laughs> makes me I, I know. <laughs> like, Duke boasted one of the absolute worst rushing Ds in all of college football. Three days before that game, John, you laid it out and said, we just run the ball against this team, let Hunter get his head straight, just run, run, run. And the game plan was the polar opposite, and I still don't know why. I So this is the one thing. I'll take – maybe small issue with so the earlier you were talking about the polling right and talking about like profile of evan hall 
honestly, I I give you kudos for trying to find an answer why we didn't pull Lyman <laughs> Master. Because <laughs> I to this I'm like I I don't know. I mean, again, as you just mapped out very clearly, a lot of questions. A lot of questions we're trying to figure out what went on, and that was one of them. Well, and a guy at left guard in Josh Preeb, whose you know, high school tape was predominantly him getting to the outside and obliterating people. I, I'll never forget, I think it was fourth quarter against um, Maryland, Maryland in 2020 that you know we basically put our entire you know reserve O-line in, and... Uh, he and, and Charlie Schmidt are out there just annihilating Terp players uh, on the right. outside. And it just, it is, it's this, this, uh, like, again, another, another example of just weird decision-making from the coaches and just a, a lack of anticipation of the problems that might come up or, or any particular strategy or solution uh, when, when plan A didn't work. Um, and it, it just seems like it, it popped up all over last season. I've, uh, you know, we, we've long wanted Northwestern to pass more and to pass more aggressively. So like some of you might be thinking like, well, isn't it, you know, you guys yelled for years about Mick McCall and not throwing the ball. Um, yes, but that was a reaction to games and seasons where we stubbornly threw the running back into the line for three to four yards per carry against teams with suspect pass D in a stacked box. Not times where we had a distinct running advantage on the opponent, like against Duke, where Hall averaged five yards per carry. Um, it's just, it just feels like a sudden departure from the Fitzgerald offensive identity of the last decade. And, and again, it just belies this kind of like lack of anticipation and effective game planning, um, or, or even effective understanding of the players at hand. Maybe I, maybe I'm giving, you know, too much credence to quote unquote, Bajakian in his second year, given how bonkers 2020 was with COVID, et cetera. But, but still it's just, it, it's, it boggles the mind. So now, as painful as it is, um, we have to revisit last year's quarterback situation as well. Oh, boy. Bu- buckle yeah. up, folks. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to start with that Duke game, which I like going back. I really feel like this was a pivotal, pivotal game for Northwestern from like a <laughs> mental and strategy standpoint. I am also triggered by this, as you might <laughs> know, if you've listened to the Duke preview so far this summer. Uh, so, I mean, Hunter got pulled in that game. Um, at roughly halftime, if I recall, maybe maybe Marty got a it was got a, a little little bit before halftime. Yeah, so I think Mar- his his last pick. Yeah, Marty got the last series. Um, as you all know, neither Andrew Marty nor Ryan Halinski had incredible seasons there on out, and yet Hunter never saw the field again for Northwestern. He threw four picks on the year. Yes, three of them were against Duke. Uh, and John has outlined in the past how two of those were launched like 50-50 balls because he had no time in the pocket and was desperately trying to make something happen with only you know two receivers against six uh, back defenders. Anyways, um, it, it just it seemed like a quick hook, if I'm honest. Like, like yes, we have 2019, and, and there's a lot of stuff that went along with that. Um, there are... It, 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 was, it was a quick hook, and it was a final hook. Which yeah, is really it's the, weird. It's the finality of it that is weird. I'm going to talk a lot. I'm going to talk a bit more about this in, in in the in the coming you know minutes here. But which I want to emphasize it's it's not that they pulled him in that game that I'm bothered by. It's the finality of it and the sense that again, much like as we were talking with the linebackers last year or, or, or yesterday, I don't feel like they 
tried to change anything for Hunter to try to set him up for success. Now, maybe they, like we, we're not in the QB room. Maybe they did. And it just it didn't take or he couldn't do it or it didn't fit like like I, I don't know. But the finality of it and then juxtaposing that against the play that you saw the rest of the year, it's just strange. Um, there, there's there's a this could we could honestly spend an entire hour on this topic. It's very nuanced. Um, the, the Hunter's time at Northwestern is 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 kind of preposterous in a lot of different ways. But like, the and, ju- and and honestly, I I think maybe we will do uh, kind of a deep dive into the the Hunter Johnson phenomenon. Un- untold, I, I'm, untold yeah. the Hunter Johnson story <laughs> as as much as much as we possibly can. I'm really interested to see what changes happen this year, and I think wonder how much that will tell us about you know last year as well. You're, yeah, you know, I, seeing how the quarterbacks play this year. I don't know that I have the stomach for it, but I think fair. Um, that's fair. I, I think there's something, some, I, I mean, something I was thinking about. There's some important things to unpack here because of how it affects what we may or may not see here in 2022. Um, but I think the general perception, both from us and from, you know, we've, we've talked to others close to the team, others in the media, et cetera. And the general read on Hunter is that he is a supremely talented football player specifically in terms of his football skills. He looks incredible in practice. He throws the best, most beautiful, most accurate ball. But in the spotlight, be that in game time, in front of the media, or like as an outspoken team leader, he's just not comfortable. And I I think that hampered his ability to thrive um, with, with the team last year. Again, this should not have been a surprise to the staff. He'd been here since 2018. Set a dude up for success. So that quick hook in the third game of the season, it screamed two things to me. Number one, the game plans we saw versus Michigan State and Duke that relied heavily on Hunter in the pass game were precisely designed because the coaches saw what a talent he was. And with the deficiencies on D and the loss of Porter, they felt like Hunter represented the best chance for Northwestern to win football games in 2021. The discomfort he had running the ball himself, the struggles on the O-line, the collapse of the defense, um, his, you know, kind of, and I'm, I'm perceiving that he didn't love being in the spotlight and didn't, didn't have that kind of natural um, uh, confidence uh, in the moment that like that, that pressure all, all came forward and undid him. But if that's true, if number one is true, if that was the belief and the game plans were designed because of the talent they saw with Hunter and the and the urgency with which they needed Hunter to perform, shouldn't plan B be to like adjust the scheme, maybe lean more on the run game, take some pressure off of Hunter by, by scheming him to get out of the pocket as opposed to benching him indefinitely? So like thinking through that now logically i can only assume that the coaching staff started the year with a quick hook in mind with hunter i.e we cannot repeat 2019 we need a loud outspoken field marshal out there you know it's a team that's lost a lot of senior talent we need we need somebody to be a senior leader for this offense versus a quiet performer and we we cannot allow you know hunter to throw in to throw interceptions and turn the ball over like like Hunter, if you if you can't do this stuff, we're gonna pull you. I think Andrew, like in the coach's defense, maybe like Andrew Marty being the exact polar opposite player from Hunter, like a guy with a chip on his shoulder. He's a great field leader. He's supremely confident. He's not great in practice. He's not very good throwing the ball. Probably made this like a really hard evaluation. But again, it just it just screams poor anticipation and adaptation to me. I mean, did they pick Hunter to be the starter by default because Marty wasn't a great practice player and Holinsky wasn't up to speed? I mean. 
seems plausible. The backup plan being bench Hunter and never go back to him is really weird in that light. Uh, Hunter and Marty's stats throughout the season look almost identical. A one-to-one TD to pick rate, 60% completion percentage. I mean, yes, Marty was really good with his, was, was better with his legs, um, more comfortable running the ball, more willing to, you know, lower a shoulder. Uh, but interesting, like, Marty was also a senior. We all assumed once he was benched that Hunter was 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 gone. We also knew that Marty was gone. And every rep he took was one less rep to evaluate Holinsky and or build toward 2022. But whenever Holinsky struggled, in came Marty. Him starting versus Illinois absolutely shocked me. And this is this is not a knock on Andrew Marty. I like Andrew Marty. I thought he was really fun to watch. Um I thought in that Illinois game, like he he probably gave us the best chance to win the Illinois game. Um, but at that point in the season, you're three and eight. Y- yes, it's a rivalry trophy. Yes, it's our rival. You want to win the game, but like, don't you also want to like get some reps for the dude that might lead your offense in 2022? It it, it just it, like again, it all these decisions kind of compound on themselves and just give you a sense of a of a coaching staff that was so far on their back heels and reeling all of last year and all facets of the team. Well, and like on the back of that too, which what we talked about before is like when you look at seasons, horrible seasons with Northwestern quarterback play, it's literally nearly a hundred percent of the time, a situation where two guys at least are juggling the position. And I mean, just trying to unpack and understand the situation, right. To start Hunter at the season to begin with, right? I mean, I think a lot of us thought that it was going to be Halinski, and then we're surprised to discover that it was Hunter. And then it was Hunter with, as Scuzz said, the quickest of hooks. And first of all, like, I, you know, I have these questions as like, was there consensus between Bajakian and Fitz in terms of like, who was going to be the starter at the front of the season? And like, what was going on there? And like, but I mean, the, whatever the situation was, the plan to start Hunter but have a hook that quick had this effect of, again, only amplifying how unsettled the overall quarterback situation was. And again, I think as we talked about last season going into this season, reducing that degree and getting one guy out there and for the longest amount of time ought to be the goal. Well, well a very under um, under-recognized issue in, in both pro and college football is that there are there are limited reps with the first team. Your starting quarterback, if you're splitting time between a couple different starters, there are limited reps in practice and in camp to get up to speed. And so like this comes up all the time at draft time where like a team will take a, you know, take a flyer on a QB in the first round or, or maybe pick like the successor to their current starter. And you'll hear um, very smart pundits, in my opinion, talk about like, what are they going to do? Like, like they're not going to be able to get this kid any reps with the team for a couple of years. This is a total waste of a, a young QB contract, which is a really you know big advantage in the NFL. And similarly in college, like, yeah, you can stack your quarterback room, but if they're not getting time with the first team, like Ryan Holinsky got thrown in at the very end of that Duke game with virtually no time spent with the first team because of, of all the split time between Marty and, and, and Hunter early on. So it's just like, again, weird decision-making and like, listen, I am not, not saying 
that sticking with or going back to Hunter Johnson would have changed the fortunes of Northwestern last year. But I do think that the plan on September 1st was half-baked. And I think the coaches made knee-jerk choices in weeks three and four that just resonated for the balance of the season. If they had had more faith in Hull and Claire in weeks one and three, maybe put less pressure on Hunter and committed to setting him up for success versus a, a screw-up-and-we-pull-you mentality, I think it could have given Northwestern a better identity. I think it likely cost us a win against a very beatable Duke team. And with the defensive woes, this frankly put the team on a crash course for a, a, a blowout after blowout in the conference season. Now, it is also very possible. Again, we are not in the rooms. It's very possible the coaches tried all this and the guys just couldn't or wouldn't follow the plan. Um, but it's also not like these were first-year players at, 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 at Northwestern. Hunter transferred here in 2018. Marty arrived in 2017. Yes, the offensive coordinator changed, but if it's really all on the players, it's a, like it's a really concerning approach to development and knowing your guys uh, at that stage in their careers. So, like ag- again, like I said this yesterday, like there there, there are times where people are like, ah, oh, you know talking about the players, talking about the players, like, like put it on the coaches. Like it's all on the coaches guys. Like college football is like, it's about the coaches. So like, I I don't know. I'm I'm ready to move on from 2021, but anything else that you guys want to throw out there? Yeah. The, the, the one thing that I would, was going to add, you know, with Hunter is that I think the general perception, not just of us, but of most Northwestern fans, when you stop and think about it, is that kind of compounding the Hunter situation is that he's this monster outlier relative to Northwestern's whole approach in general relative to like practices everything. I feel like Northwestern is and Fitz is like the ultimate practices everything guy, right? If a guy is underperforming on Saturdays, but he looks incredible the following week in practice, Fitz is one of like the top guys that is going to continue playing that guy and continue telling you how good in practice he looked that week, right? There were multiple examples of this last year. There have been examples of this in years past, plenty, right? And But not Hunter, right? I mean, again, like that's supposedly the whole book on Hunter, right? It's like so great in practice, not, you know, not in games, right? And... Um, the, uh, you know, I, well, everyone well, knows. And, and, and Marty's the opposite. And I, for, I forget if it was, um, I think it might've been Nick Urban. I forget which former offensive lineman, but there was like one of them commented during the season on Twitter, like Marty's a terrible practice player, but he, he lays it all out on the field the moment that he gets in a game and like, right. And I mean, it's like, and of course, players tend to gravitate around guys like that. And of course, players are always going to back all players. They're going to back their teammates regardless. But I mean, it's just so weird because the book of what you've heard with Hunter forever is is like, this guy is, you know, awesome in practice, right? And even people who are clear Hunter detractors describe him that way. And yet he seemed to be this, this whole outlier. I mean, again, one thing to forget, so many people point that you can certainly say Hunter's performance in the Duke game, if not the worst quarterback performance of a quarterback last season it's definitely probably top two hunter also had the best it was quarterback bad. Per- it was bad yeah it was really bad hunter also had the best quarterback performance of any quarterback last year connor's performance in the michigan state game is the best any quarterback played against an opposing team last year so again it's he threw like four, he threw four touchdowns in two and a half games um right and you know halinski threw four and Marty through six throughout the course of the rest right. of the season. And again, it's it's all, this is not like, the whole bottom line is that that 
it's all just weird. It's all weird in ways that seem to run against. And this is where when yes. Sam's talking about, you know, like it's just it's it's all strange stuff that we've always wanted to get to the bottom of. I don't know that we'll ever get to the bottom of it, but it, it, you you gather it all up, and it just contributed to this super unsettled situation that just had you know net effect to make it a mess of everything. If you or a loved one is seriously injured by someone else's negligence, hire Kent Sinson of the Sinson Law Group. After over a decade prosecuting murder cases in Chicago, Sinson opened his own firm focused on wrongful death and personal injury cases. He specializes in car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and other transportation accidents, as well as construction accidents, medical negligence, slip and falls, product liability, and more. Millions recovered for clients. No fee unless he wins. The Sinson Law Group. Compassion, empathy, and vigorous advocacy. Go to SinsonLawGroup.com or call 312-332-2107 for a free consultation and go Cats. So let's go to 2022. Please. We're going to talk, we're going to talk <laughs> personnel and then uh, I want to examine a little bit how the coaches can, can maybe adapt differently this year. So um, to start, my thesis on the wide receivers and the offensive line is identical from last year. Um, the wide receiver is better and deeper than it looks on paper and it remains a very diverse set of players. Remember going into last year, all the no no returning production stuff. Well, Malik Washington looked really good as as we thought he would, and Bryce Kurtz looked good as well before he got injured. With Stefan Robinson, that was a really decent group. Now Washington and Kurtz are both back this year as our presumed number one and number two, and there's some really interesting guys behind them. So first, Wayne Dennis, who got some play I think two years ago in 2020, looked we were excited about him coming to last season. We can only assume he was injured all of last year because we never saw him. Um, he has had some nice-looking play in fall camp. Uh, he's a big-body receiver who can scrap for 50-50 balls downfield. A great compliment to um, the the slottish uh, Washington and the you know more traditional six-foot-two outside Northwestern receiver in Kurtz. Um, we've been waiting to see the six-foot-five Genson Hooper Price hit the field since he arrived on campus. Uh, he has likewise had some highlight reels this spring. He got on the field a bit last year, but I don't didn't he might have had like one or two balls yeah it it, it wasn't a lot um so again you know a guy with with you know great looking um measurables that that might just not be a great fit on game day that's fine but um interesting nonetheless given some of the plays that we've seen uh on instagram and and twitter uh this this uh last spring and this fall um unfortunately last year's promising freshman jordan mosley transferred and uh one of our favorites of the pod triple j um J.J. Jefferson finally exhausted his eligibility. Uh, but now is the time to look for uh, Calvin Johnson, a.k.a. Starscream, and the uber-hyped true freshman Reggie Florima, our first four-star receiver since Kyle Prater, I believe, uh, who, who... Unless you count Mosley, who transferred out, right? Well, I, yeah, you know what? He was a four-star on... Um, was a two, four, seven. I forget who had him as a four rivals had him as a three, but that's a good point. Um, Mosley was a four star by that, by one of the recruiting services. So, um, but Florima was, um, I mean, this dude, this dude was a name in Illinois high school football this last year and is the first, I guess the first four star, like, like really legit deep threat that um, looks to be coming to Northwestern. I mean, he's, he's the type of guy that could really accentuate um, and extend what, what Northwestern's able to do if they can get enough time to throw and, and if they can get to the ball, the ball to him accurately. Um, there's, you know, depth players too. Jacob Gill had some run last year. Uh, Donnie Navarro transfers over from Illinois. I think he caught um, 20 balls or something. 
But those top five, Washington, Kurtz, um, Hooper Price, Johnson, and Florima, to me look like a a great, great set of receivers with you know diverse body types, um, the skills to do some damage, and uh, you know could be a nice set. Not all five of them have to hit. Yeah, no, and I I totally agree too. And I think it's really important for people to think you know to sift through what was going on in the passing game last year and be like. Everything that was going on in the passing game that was a mess last year, like, weren't none of it Malik Washington's fault. Like, no. that guy looked great. Um, and to your point, so did so did Kurtz. I think you fold in Calvin Johnson, Starscream, and those are three guys who are both in that speed kind of category, right? And I think we've got the ability, you know, we've got guys like that, and those guys were worked effectively last year. And I think if you have someone, I think maybe a lot of people, because Stefan was kind of the number one guy, you look at the stats, Stefan and Malik were like neck and neck in terms of production last year. So I think big things for Malik. And again, that was done with this really unsettled quarterback situation we're talking about. I think my big questions, because you mentioned that we do have a diverse set of body types, right? But I think we are and have been searching for that big bodied guy who's going to produce. I think... I think of year after year, you're so good at juxtaposing that other teams will have that guy who's just like that, a 6'4 ball catcher. You know what I mean? Yeah. That That is their their guy that they go to, right? And I think Northwestern is, is searching for that guy. And I, I look at Florima, he doesn't have that height, but he's big, right? Like he is a big, solid dude. He's big, wide across the shoulders, wide receiver. And, you know, my hope is that he comes in and that he pushes Dennis and GHP, right? And that from those guys, and again, like you said, the tape's been good. From those guys, we get one big target emerge who is like, I'm going to be that guy to offset the speed guys um, and kind of complete this. That's all. That's my hope. Well, and the comp is, is Skoranek, right? You know, a, a, a guy right. who could get downfield and you could throw it up for him and he could fight for the ball in the air and come down with it. And when I say, right. you know, I, like, you know, describing big body receivers, that's what I'm always looking for in those receivers. Um, and, and again, he, even like even an RCB, right, who wasn't enormous but had some size and was like a, a dependable target. Oh, and an absurd vertical, too. Oh, yeah, man, watching right. that dude leap. Um, that's the thing about, like, you know, Hoover Price is so slight of frame. You know, yes, he's six foot five. You, you don't expect him to be in those like physical matchups downfield, but Dennis has shown he can do it. And yes, I agree with you on um, Florima, who also I think might have an, have another top speed above, above Dennis. Um, but that's where like, y- y- you need this in your receiver core. This is, this is a criticality of how you build your, your offensive weapon set because then you can create mismatches. The other thing I'll mention, and this is, you know, a problem I'll get to later is a lot of those, you know, six foot four big bodies that teams are using to, uh, to have mismatches downfield come from the tight end. And um, we don't have a lot of great looking options in that space right now. So shifting to offensive line, um, the O-line continues to plug highly rated recruits into a two deep that has developed a culture and can look directly to the NFL for inspiration. And and this is why like I, I'm bullish on this group. They've, they've not looked at the part, at least statistically the last two years. Um, Again, some of the decision making last year with regard to like outside running and pulling guards and schemes was a little weird, but you know we'll see what happens. Um, Pete Skaronski, man bear Pete, is being talked about by most pundits as the top left tackle in the conference, if not Con- the, con- the country. Yeah, 
He, I mean, and, he's on the top top of a bunch of lists, and you know, nationwide. Yep, and that that's that's where it starts. Now we have seen, you know, I, ironically, in 2019, we had a pretty damn good left tackle too, um, and uh, the rest the rest of the 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 team, you know, struggled. But I think there's more here than just Skaronski. So we were really excited about Josh Preeb getting in the starting li- lineup last year. He struggled at times in pass pro, but he is a legit steamroller in the running game. He's going to be your left guard. Uh, Charlie Schmidt, I think, was effectively sixth man last year. He played in a couple different spots. Uh, he's a, he's another good player who I I felt was playing catch up last year. He would get thrown in and, and maybe struggle a little bit, and then fl- thrown in a different spot and struggle a little bit. But um, he slots in at center, which is his natural position. And then um, a, a big unexpected bonus is uh, Ethan Wiedekar returning at right tackle. Um, I I don't know that I'd say he was like the greatest player last year necessarily, but like we were all expecting to have to replace his experience. And I think it's huge to have him. Now I would love to see Caleb Tiernan play uh, this more this year. He's listed as Wiedekar's backup, um, especially thinking that maybe he would shift to left tackle next year to replace man bear Pete. But, um, but again, having an experienced senior right tackle is huge maybe they both play and maybe they find spot, you know, opportunities for Caleb in other spots. Um, you always need extra offensive linemen. You need depth. There, there will be injuries. Uh, the fifth guy is Conrad Rowley, um, who had a couple starts at guard last year and was again, a little bit of a journeyman kind of, kind of like, um, Charlie Schmidt moving around, moving around the line. He's, he's the presumed number five for now, but this is the difference between last year where, you know, you had Schmidt, you had Rowley. I think, I think Sam Garrett got injured at center for a couple games last year. And, 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 uh, some guys were, were, filling in i believe there were some injuries at guard but this year you've got some real pedigree coming in behind the starting five you've got ben rather um listed as the backup center you've got really high recruits zach franks and danny mcguire at tackle yes mcguire's a freshman but still uh you've got a favorite of the podcast freshman nick herzog a 270 pound offensive lineman with zero percent body fat and Dude, Co- conan the barbarian basically Dude, he's <laughs> a beast he's a yeah can't so wait to these, see him on the line. It's all like high three-star or four-star players, the likes of which we just haven't seen a lot of in the past. I mean, the recruiting in, in the offensive line room has gone up dramatically. And whereas last year's line was you know young and raw but talented, this year's line should be more experienced and deeper with even more on paper talent. So it like if they don't jump up production in production and it's it is very possible that they struggle to come together. I felt like last year's line just could never come together. It it felt like they'd someone would have a breakdown, you know, not the same person always, not you know, even the same person on on you know back-to-back plays. It's just like the breakdowns whether it was holding penalties or swim moves or whatever. They just kind of couldn't get out of their own way. It is very possible that continues to happen again this year. It, I mean, if, if it does, or if, if they can't generate um, the, the, the type of blocking to, to open up our run game, I, I think there are some serious questions we should all have about how this offense is being constructed and coached. But I am, again, I'm bullish on this, on this position group. Yeah, I think, and I mean, I am too. And I think there are various axioms that relate to football and relate to college football. And I feel like Scuzz, over the years, doing all the Big Ten offensive previews, you've really looked, looked located in that, like, when people say, oh, but a team is returning a ton of its offensive line, that's not lip service. That almost always is a good thing. 
I feel like offensive line is like one of the big position groups where returning a bunch of guys and building experience on the unit has a huge net effect. I think of Michigan State, right, last year. Um, and well, and health. Health is the other one. That's right, just, right. It, it's, con- it's consistency. It, it's can you keep the same five guys together as long as possible? The more the, the five play together, I mean, it's almost like one, one entity. And the longer that is together, the be- the better it is. When it doesn't all, it doesn't always mean they improve, but it virtually guarantees like a a, a floor. It, like it really minimizes your downside risk. Whereas la- last year, I felt like, oh wow, I was, I'm super excited. There's so much potential for this O line. Well, there was also like a pretty low floor because they hadn't played much together. That should right. be mitigated somewhat this year. Right, and I think too. Right, I think lost in the fact that you know that general team implosion down the stretch, you know, that we saw at the end of the season, Purdue rolling into Illinois, right? Um, I think lost in that is the fact that at the beginning of the year, the line would be great for these long stretches, and then they'd commit back-breaking mistakes. It wasn't like getting overpowered. It was like, oh, I can't believe that error happened again. Those are precisely the things that get solved with reps. And with continuity. And this is like, this is not a Northwestern offensive line thing. This is literally like an offensive line thing in general. And we mentioned this briefly, yes, you know, yesterday when we were doing the defensive pot at the very beginning. Um, but again, and, and for you youngins, we've noticed on, on Twitter, some people, you know, you know, it's easy to forget people in their 20s just don't have the perspective on these seasons. But go back and look at the stats of what Northwestern was in 1999 and then 2000 running the ball. Look at what Damian Anderson did in 99, and then look what he did in in 2000. He basically doubled his production, and Northwestern returned four offensive linemen from the previous season. So, you know, it's like these things aren't magic. Reps matter for O-line. Speaking of Damian Anderson, let's talk about his position group next, and that's running back. Uh, it's definitely the strength of this team. And I think this is what pe- you know. people who are excited and optimistic about Northwestern in 2022, this is what they cite. It's that Cam Porter's coming back and everybody else who played last year is coming back too. Um, I, you know, We talked about offensive identity. I think Northwestern needs to find their identity through this group this year. It should be the focal point of the offense, and, it, and that focal point should very much center on, on Cam Porter. Um, he was just electric uh, in the in the what the back third of the 2020 season. Really hard to tackle. Uh, he reminds me so much of Tyrell Sutton just because he he possesses a lot of speed, a lot of power, and a lot of shiftiness. Uh, he kind of has all of it. He's a true running threat. Whether he's going outside the tackles, inside the tackles, um, from the wildcat position, uh, it's he, he he can produce after contact like. He, he can he can do a lot I, I, you know this is small footnote but um after that 2020 season I think they interviewed as part of the NFL draft stuff they were interviewing some of the Buckeye linebackers and asking them who was the hardest player for them to tackle and they were like Cam Porter like that that dude is uh he's a load and he's shifty so when you pair him with a home run threat like Evan Hall and the experienced depth of Claire and Tyus I think there's a lot to be excited about here um, I really hope that the coaches are careful about using Cam and the Wildcat set too much. It was a great look in 2020. It decimated Illinois. It caused all sorts of headaches for Ohio State. But then we went to it way too often in 2021. Like, for example, Tyus had eight carries for hardly any yards against Michigan State, and I feel like it was primarily out of that set. 
it just felt like we used it more out of desperation versus an intentional strategy to confuse the defense. That being said, something I would love to see, especially given how ineffective two tight end sets were last year, is to see more two running back sets. And what I I specifically want to pair here is Cam's versatility and power with Hull's speed and how good he is as a receiver out of the backfield. Hull was our third leading receiver last year with 33 catches, an eight-yard average, which is decent for running back, and two touchdowns. Using those two guys together with a quarterback, like not not the Wildcat set, not, you know, the little tea party in the backfield misdirection that Northwestern, you know, ran for so many years back in the day. But, um, you know, with the passing threat, layer in the concept of the RPO, there's so much you can do there. This would be a much, much more way, a much more effective way to confuse and put tef- tension on specific defensive players than telegraphing that direct snap run. Now, here's the here's the downside risk that we have to call out. I talked about this in the Minnesota preview with regard to uh, Muhammad Ibrahim. Cam may not come back at 100. percent Now, I I don't actually know what his specific injury was. I don't know if it's ever been disclosed. Um. Players sometimes come lower, lower body injury, I mean, lower body injury, right? Like players sometimes come back and they're just fine. Uh, players sometimes come back and they're 80% of themselves. We, we don't know. It is possible that cam could come back at less than hundred percent. It is possible that Evan Hull could struggle to duplicate his 2021 numbers. I mean, he was so good last year in, in a space where everybody knew he was, you know, the best chance that Northwestern had to move the ball in, in you know, the back half of the season. Um, these these things are possible. It's important to call them out. I don't think that they will happen, but um, there's a you know thirty percent chance maybe that our that our running game doesn't improve much. Um, we do have a really nice freshman player in Joe Heeman um, or Hyman, and I th- I really think that Tyus has more to his game if used properly. A thousand but, um, percent, yeah, completely. But, if Cam or Hall are limited, I, I think the offense could remain, you know, certainly the running offense could remain flat from last year. And it, it was down, you know, 40 yards a game from 2020. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. And I think with Porter, we're not going to know until Dublin, just like you said, where yep. he is. Um, but I, I mean, my thing regardless is that the attitude is there need to be two backs who get an absolute shit ton of carries this year. Um it one should be Hall and two should be Porter and if two can't be Porter it needs to be Claire. Um, and again, lest we forget, Claire is a captain of this team, right? Um, and as Scus said, he looked great last year. This needs to be a run-heavy team. And if it, it ain't working inside, head outside, pull, trap, whatever. And then just to reemphasize what you said about the receptions, I mean, these backs gotta catch passes, especially Hall. It's funny, Hall had thirty-three. If you look at the film. He, I mean, he should be an outlet and a safety valve on every single play. I mean, just give the QB just a dump off. He can make something happen. You might dump it to him for two and he turns it into 10, you know, but it's like that he's just crucial to, to, to providing that security blanket. And honestly, you can look at some of the times when the QBs got crushed early and late in the season and just see that that blanket wasn't there. And, you know, so, yeah, 33 balls, turn that into more. The guy makes things happen. <laughs> so uh, let's talk tight end because I think, I think this remains a problem for Northwestern. And it's not because the guys that we have are bad. It's because they are primarily used as blockers or checkdown options. 
good Northwestern offenses and, frankly, most good college offenses and, frankly, most good NFL offenses yep. are, are opened up with attacking tight ends who create tension points for defenses by being multiple in their role, meaning they're a you know 245-pound dude that can knock a linebacker off his feet or can run 20 yards upfield and catch a pass in the, in the seam. Uh, Charlie Mangieri and Marshall Lang caught 20 balls last year, including three touchdowns, but they averaged less than eight yards per carry. That just is not good usage in an offense that often has two tight ends on the field. And, you know, John diagrammed this well. I don't mean to to upset you again, John, but like (laughs) Hunter's last pick in the Duke game, there were two tight ends that weren't really doing anything on the play. And it it meant Hunter was throwing deep to like two wideouts in a sea of defenders. Uh, at Boston College, Mike Bajakian attacked defenses with his tight ends deep. He leveraged mismatches and defenses skewing to defend the run, and he went over the top to the tight end. Not five-star tight ends, two-star tight ends. We have believed for a couple of years uh, that Thomas Gordon might be the best option in that mold as you know, in terms of a pass catcher, but like regardless of who plays, whether it's Mangieri or Lang Lang or 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 Gordon or somebody else, like the usage has to change. And again, especially if we have two on the field, um, which like the blocking is a boon for the running game. And, and when you bring Cam back, you're thinking about going out to the outside more. Like, like yes, I'm, I'm totally fine with two tight ends on the field. You just have to use them more deceptively and more um, creatively than what we did last year because it really limits the passing options. And especially if you're just having them in to block, Pull a Stanford, just bring in another offensive lineman. I've totally thought about that myself. And it's like, look, I mean, ultimately, to your point, Scuzz, I mean, I think we've kind of worked to try to talk ourselves and get behind guys at this position for a couple of years now. But, I mean, at this point, like, I mean, I'm just wondering, because right to your point, Bajakin historically loves throwing deep to tight ends. So now I'm kind of, I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, you got to have a tight end on the field that can stretch the field at least to a degree. I look at a guy like Chris Petrucci, right, who's going to be a true freshman. I'd be like, yeah, I know for an NCAA tight end, he's probably crazy underweight right now. Um, but look, you got to have a guy that can stretch the field out there, um, or else what are you doing? And again, Scuzz mentioned it earlier. This is a team, we're a team that has the ability to play two running backs. And if you're, I mean, you kick the tires to the extent you can kick the tires, but if you can't integrate the tight ends effectively into the downfield passing offense, like Sam said, either bring in a heavy or go two backs. But you know, you gotta you gotta put the most dynamic guys on the field. So now we arrive at the quarterback position. Um and I'll be honest, folks, like like we're we're not sure how this is gonna go this year. Um all signs are pointing to Ryan Holinsky as QB one. This is exactly what I would have expected. Um, I, I don't, I don't see it as a, as a surprise or as an indicator of anything other than Holinsky had, you know, a, a good camp and did what the coaches wanted to see. Um, word out of fall camp is that Brendan Sullivan really pushed him, and that's you know that's worth keeping in the back of your mind for a minute. So let's talk about Holinsky. He's not very mobile, but he's he's probably the best arm on the team. I mean, when you consider Sullivan, Carl Richardson, and then the true freshman, Jack Lausch. Uh, Helinski really struggled with completions and accuracy last year. Uh, he sprayed shorter throws especially, and he had uh, mixed success downfield. Um, 
I think, what, 57% completion? No, sorry, 54% completion. It was a drop-off from his freshman year at, at South Carolina where he was closer to 60. Uh, some of this, you know, certainly due to the offensive line, the struggles there with pass pro that I mentioned, the lack of a running identity. Um, he also had no next, next to no reps in camp. I talked about this already a little bit. Um, I think to keep the job and be successful this year, in particular, Holinsky must be much better against pressure. He took way too many sacks. That Nebraska game in particular, we even, like he was generally okay in that game, but he got lit up um, by the defense on, on sacks. And, and a couple, I mean, there were a couple, if you recall, where you know a free rusher came through very quickly, very fast, where he didn't have much of an option. But he's just got to be generally better against pressure. And then he, he needs to significantly up his yards per attempt. Again, all these things are related. If you have no time to throw, it is hard to throw, you know, intermediate and downfield passes. Um, but his numbers were in like the mid fives. That's really problematic. Frankly, his numbers are really low at South Carolina too. You hope that a guy can can start to develop, get more comfortable in the pocket. Um, his mobil- his mobility does limit him here. He's he's not one who's going to really extend plays or you know bootleg out of the pocket and throw on the run effectively. Um, I will say his decision-making didn't rankle as particularly fraught or anything last year. I thought he was, you know, frankly, like generally underwhelming, but you think about the prep and um, all the back and forth and in and out of the game, et cetera. I just, you know, I like, I think those coaching decisions 100% impacted his comfort and his consistency. So this year is, is, is really like kind of the first true test if he's named QB one and he's given the opportunity to, 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 to run. Um, so I like the one other interesting thing here is I think because Hilinski is not a mobile QB, he has to be an even more effective thrower than the other quarterbacks on the team. I mean, I, I, I think this is case in point, the rationale behind the decision to play Marty so much last year is that, you know, Holinsky wasn't better enough throwing to to justify the drop off uh, with with the legs, and and he's not going to attack as a runner very much. He just needs to be better throwing. Now, the alternative, Brandon Sullivan, does bring that dual threat. I, I shouldn't say alternative because I, we believe that Holinsky has been named QB one. It has been announced, but there's some social media buzz, etc. Um, but Sullivan's presumably the backup. Uh, he does bring that dual threat element. He's almost a carbon copy size-wise of Peyton Ramsey. He was really well-regarded coming out of high school for both his arm and his feet and his ability to throw on the run versus pressure. He sounds like the prototypical Northwestern quarterback, and I will be stunned if we don't see him with some regularity for for good, bad, or or, or otherwise. Um, I, you know, I, I had written here that I think or is like officially in the forecast for the depth chart. But again, I, you know, th- there's some signs pointing that that might not be the question or that might not be the case. The biggest question I have is, do we see developmental impact out of these guys at the hands of Bajakian? Because thus far, we've had one year where Bajakian had Ramsey fall into his lap and it was a cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs COVID year. Then a year where three ex- experienced quarterbacks looked all sorts of off kilter. And now we're entering a season where we have an experienced guy who's desperately in need of reps and development. And we have a redshirt freshman. So are we going to see improvement from Holinsky over last year? Are we going to see more effective use of the two guys? If we really are going to, you know, use Sullivan as a change of pace Uh, for Northwestern to succeed, they must get more from the quarterback. This is not a, a team that can, 
you know, the, the days of us, you know, doing nothing but running against Illinois, I, I think are, are over. <laughs> we joked about that in our Illinois preview. Um, and we've, we've not really beaten anybody else in the big 10 with that strategy. Uh, so we have to get more from the quarterback and it has to be in a way that makes sense. You know, that running identify that running identity being established using play action, you know, using intermediate attacking downfield as opposed to just a short check down game with no pop and no protection. It, it, it has to change. We have to set the QB up for better success. And then, then and only then we'll be able to evaluate somebody like Helinski effectively. Do do you guys remember when, at what point Helinski transferred to Northwestern? Was it before spring practice of last year? I don't believe so. So if that's the case, I, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but like this could be the first time he's had a full off season in this system as presumably the number one. And not just this system. This is the most stable period Holinsky has had <laughs> in his college yeah. career. Uh, this is a guy who I think was at South Carolina, went through multiple OCs at South Carolina, had the job, lost the job, moved to Northwestern, juggled time last year, and then came in. Um, so that's one thing. Um, there, and, and this is one of those things where it's like, it's, it's so, I mean, it's like if you want to map out a path, where things improve, you can map that path out. That, that'd be one piece of it. And another piece of it is, again, the stability of the offensive line in front of him, right? It's, it's a more stable group in front of him. I mean, we've went through all the defensive previews. Last year was an absolutely epic year for defensive ends in the conference. And a bunch <laughs> of those guys are gone. Um, plus everything, you know, a, a ton of the terror that uh, Wisconsin was bringing from their linebacker core. Um, so you've got those kind of pieces too. And then again, and this is for all of you who have kids uh, to to uh, to borrow from Tematoa in uh, Moana. Uh, pick one, pick one. I don't care if it's Sullivan or Holinsky, but again, as I think we've we've hammered home, you don't want to be juggling quarterbacks. It's like and and Scuzz said right, like we may see some Sullivan. Ideally, I you know if it's going to be Holinsky, ride with. Ride with Holinsky. Let's let's just you know give him that stability. I I mean I think it's funny we've talked yesterday and I alluded to it earlier today. But if you go all the way back to 1999 and you look at Zach Kustak's numbers when he was effectively splitting time with Nick Kreinbrink, like I say this like with just total adoration and affection for an all-time great Northwestern quarterback. Zach Kustak's 1999 numbers are basically a dumpster fire. He completed like 45% of his passes that season, effectively <laughs> splitting time, and then ascended to Mount Olympus the final year. Again, am I saying that's going to happen? No. I'm just saying stability is always a good thing. So again, like Scott said, I mean, if it's, if it's Holinsky, and just as one other final little aside with Linsky, it doesn't really mean, you know, it, it's so much one way or the other. He just seems to be a super awesome dude. Uh, he just seems so likable and in like press conferences really works, gives these deep, thoughtful, insightful answers. And just, I don't know, he's Ryan Holinsky's a really easy guy to root for. Let's put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. So one last call back to 2019. Um, that year, and again, you know, I'm talking about when our offense was putrid in 2019 and worse than, than last season. Uh, that year, Charlie Kubander was 9 of 12 kicking field goals. Compare that to 2021 where he went 6 of 13. 
Now, we were not shy during the season about calling out Fitz uh, for continuing to throw Kubander to the Wolves. I mean, this is like, dude is in a headspace, like, take some pressure off of him, give another kicker a shot. Again, set your team up for success. Set your players up for success. Not only not throwing, uh, keep throwing Kubander to the Wolves, but like, not uh, going for fourth downs when, you know, they didn't, it was clearly a field goal situation but because they were gun shy of Kubander and wouldn't go to one of the other guys they would go for it on fourth and six from the 30 or from like the 28 and put undue pressure on their on on their you know struggling quarterbacks like I just it like right again it's crazy opening yeah opening every door except for the one right in front of there were two other talented kickers on the roster last year we never gave them a shot it's very strange but here's like i want to go a little bit further and i apologize this is a little mathy but so those nine points like he hit nine in 2019 he only hit six last year those nine points not only represented nine points on the scoreboard for the season but there were critical mental moments in games during the season michigan state and purdue in particular Again, I'm not saying we necessarily would have won those games, but like Purdue, like like maybe he gets that 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 field goal against Purdue, like maybe that that game ends in a different way. But it, it, it resulted in a bunch of those other fourth, questionable fourth down decisions that you talked about, Sam. I estimate that the kicking game, like there was like at least one opportunity a game to kick a field goal. So take the 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 differential of three that were missed from his percentage in 2019 versus 2021 another 12 opportunities to kick a field goal during the season and figure he hits nine of those. That's, that's 12 more field goals. That's three points a game on average. That would have taken our scoring average from 16.6 up to 19.6. Again, I'm not saying that changes the fortunes of the team, but the, the, the landscape and the character of the offense looks a lot different. If you're actually taking those opportunities, like Sam just outlined to, to, to kick field goals this year, uh, Jack Olson is listed as the starter, at least here in my Phil Steele mag. Uh, he was the number two kicking recruit in the nation going into 2020. He transferred out of Michigan State, uh, came to Northwestern. Uh, I, I think improvement in this phase of the game is absolutely critical if we spe- expect Northwestern to make any strides on offense. And like maybe Olson struggles. Let's give some other dudes a chance. Let's take some pressure off of off of a guy in the most like pressure microscope situation in all of the sport um to take a breather and let somebody else try to kick a field goal for god's sake yeah i mean that that, that's a critical part that has been just rough so all told like i i genuinely believe that this offense will be better in 2022 and i like it's hard for me to not believe that math just like dictates that we will get a little bit better is it even possible to get worse i don't know I mean, was, come on, Scuzz, yeah, I mean, sorry, because it was my understanding that there would be no math. Yeah, so. you know, um, sorry, John, I hate to disappoint, but um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm going to say it this way. Like, could Northwestern return to a dominant running game that leverages pulling linemen like we saw in the back half of 2020? Possible. Could we see an improved passing game that riffs off of that running game rather than operates independently? Possible. Do we have a deeper wide receiver core that can get open and help convert tough third downs? Maybe. But a great passing game that solves Northwestern's offensive S&P woes of the last 8 to 10 years? Unlikely. An offense that can win games despite its defense? Unlikely. 
So here's here's what I think. I think at best, this offense approximates what we saw in 2020, which was a fine offense for what Northwestern was, not an offense that's going to go out and win you games 50 to 45. Again, they were like, what, 90th in the 90s in the S&P Plus? Um, I'll mention the lack of a John Rain type at tight end and, and unproven quarterback play are the biggest hurdles to get to that 2020 level. But the running game should be solid from day one uh, versus, you know, an emerging running game like we saw in 2020. Uh, there are less questions at wide receiver and offensive line going into this season. Um, ultimately, for me, this is a huge Bajakian evaluation year. You know, given COVID, the personnel shifts and injuries, et cetera, the, the, the quarterback craziness, he probably gets both like too much blame in 2021 and too much credit in 2020. And so my expectation is like, like we have to have basic competence, right? Like we, the, the offense cannot kill itself again this year like they did last year with penalties and turnovers. There also has to be some sort of measurable improvement in the efficiency and explosiveness. Um, anything else in that, like, I'm asking for us to consider a new offensive coordinator. I don't know that I'm yelling for it, but, um, but that's, so that's, that's where I feel like we are. Like, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to promise anything crazy. I've seen some people out there like, Oh, if we could just get a top 60 offense, folks, that ain't happening. This is not going to be a top 60 offense, but in the, in the, to use the lexicon from John's preview yesterday, looking for wins to get to six and six, a competent offense that, that operates similar to that 2021 can get it done. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's exactly the way I've been thinking. And in that regard, like there's a group of teams, like I'm just not putting too much care into thinking or perseverating over how this offense does against Wisconsin, Iowa, Penn state, Ohio state with the first three. It's just cause they're probably going to have awesome defenses. And in the case of Wisconsin and Iowa, they just, emphatically showed that that just just performance difference against us last year um we didn't play penn state last year i'm just telling you they're probably gonna have a great defense um and those are all like knowns and with ohio state it's just it may not matter how many points anyone scores against them because the buckeyes may regularly score 50 to 60 points a game with ease right but the other eight games right there's this collection of defenses and they all range from bad to half decent and the interesting thing, you know, and we'll get into it later this week, of that group, Nebraska, this this bad-to-half-decent group, Nebraska could be the best of that group, um, which means we're going to learn a lot right away. In terms if of, they're not vomiting. Yeah, right, if they're not <laughs> vomiting. They're, they're, they're so tough, so old school with the, their approach. It's incredible. Um, the, uh, but I, I think if you look at those eight teams as a whole, um, there's more than enough on this offense to do damage against that group. And, and again, it goes back to everything Scuzz closed with, the Bajakian piece of it, right? His play calling's got to get better. He's got to find schemes that put the best guys on the field. Some of those two-back sets would be awesome. Pick a QB, settle on a QB, go with that QB. Um, if he can do those things, and then we get any improvement from Halinski and that offensive line. Um but again, I, I think, you know, there needs to be that commitment to making this that run first team, dynamic run first team, you know, take advantage of what we know Hull is, what we know what the, 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 combine, the combined backfield like could be. Um, so I, I think, you know, I'd like to see some, some of those like three wide, two back sets, some of those kind of things. And, and then, you know, just go dynamic, try to lead into run, try to work some misdirection. But again, it's, it's, 
it's finding those those wins within that schedule again within that that group outside where there really are a lot of defenses who can get got in on this schedule there really are i mean i think where it gets tricky is you got a, a bunch of off a bunch of you know it's 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 pairing our offense with our defense and you're trying to answer so many questions at once and that's where it gets tricky I think that's that's going to be the big key. I mean, there's a lot of ifs. If everything goes well, things could things could be decent this year. I mean, this could be a decent team, but everything has to go well. And like last year, everything went wrong. So you know, you got to think like, okay, something's going to get right, right, right. I mean, like, I have no idea what that part's going to be, but like something's going to click, and you know, we'll see some like big improvements. Someone's going to jump out that we're not expecting and, you know, we'll see. I think too, like I, I, the, and this goes to things we've talked about, all the team previews we've done everything this season. But I think of, you know, the big game boomer Twitter account who again has shouted us a couple times and, and let's be honest, big game boomer puts a lot of stuff up. That's very clickbaity and with no shortage of trolling, you know, depending on what fan base he wants to rile up. But he put out his list of you know predictions for the Big Ten East and the Big Ten West. And the East pretty much is just about the exact way we would have drawn it up loosely, right? I mean, top to bottom, it was pretty much what you'd think. It was like Ohio State, Michigan State, Michigan, Penn State, Maryland, and so on, right? Sleeping and, on Maryland, man. He's and, sleeping on Maryland. A lot of yeah, I know. Are, That's so. we, that was our first thought. Our our first thought was Scuzz would have had Maryland higher. <laughs> but, but then on the other side, he had Purdue winning the West. And on one hand, we're like Oof, uh, our consensus. If you're listening, our consensus is like Purdue ain't winning the West. But I think to a larger point, there are a lot of people looking, being like, "Well, I don't know." I mean, even us. I think you've listened to all our previous our consensus, like probably Wisconsin. I mean, like, they seem to be in the best position of anybody. Um, but, you know, t- to a larger point, right, it's like I truly believe we're working out more stuff than everybody else is in the West, but everybody's working out stuff in the West. Everybody's got problems in the West. Everyone's trying to sort things out. It was kind of maddening the degree to which we weren't able to take advantage of that last year. But it's like, if we do improve, other teams very well might not improve. Everyone's dealing with stuff. So it's like, there there are wins. We keep saying it. There are wins. There are wins that can be had here. And it's like, you see the forest through the trees. We're trying to find six. There are six wins there. Yeah, so, um, you know, it, I, I, I feel like we've painted a good picture and i also feel like we haven't been too rosy and we haven't been too you know negative you know i, I think that we've come at this with a as an objective look as we possibly can you know just trying to take emotions out of it you know just laying down the facts laying down what we saw and not getting caught up in like the tradition of northwestern offense being god awful and you know tradition so, yeah, I mean, the laundry. You know, trying not to get blinded by the laundry as much as we possibly can. Well, I think our thought, like we got into it a little bit here at the end of this of this episode, but our our thought coming back um, 
in the next couple days is you know the death chart will be out and we'll be able to talk a little bit more specifically about the Nebraska the, the the matchup with Nebraska in Dublin and um I think we'll be able to put a little bit more of a a an expectation out there on you know where we think this this team will land go through the schedule all that all that jazz more officially I would say too like I mean Scuzz talked about it today I talked about it yesterday we've got an offensive and defensive coordinator who should reasonably expect that a repeat performance of last year's performance does not lead to retention like that should be the expectation they should be Correct. coaching like their they should be coaching like their jobs depend on it those their jobs should depend on it and they should innovate and 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 you know work and push themselves and get that improvement that they need and that we all want and let's see them do it. And again, I wonder how much uh, Dr. Greg will have influence on retention or not, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. Make his, Hey, make his decision easy. Do great this year. Let's, yeah, let's, absolutely, let's yeah. see it. Words to live by. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that that's kind of our offensive preview. Um, you know, hopefully, you're able to get a lot out of it and hopefully we were able to answer some of the questions you had going in. And um, like you said, we're going to be back one, one more time this week, um, a little bit later on this week uh, to preview Saturday's game against Nebraska. I mean, that's, you know, the season is here, you know, the season is nigh and we finally get to, you know, take the ifs out of the conversation and, you know, talk about what's happening on the field. And I can't wait for that. That's going to be so awesome. Absolutely. So again, everyone who's listened, thank you for listening. We'll have one more for you this week. Enjoy that plane flight over to Dublin if you're already there. Enjoy the sights. Uh, hopefully there won't be too much red around you and you can actually, you know, find your purple your your purple friends and family and, and really enjoy this run up to this game. And shout at us. Shout at us this week if you want. Uh, maybe you disagree vehemently. Maybe you uh, think we're geniuses. Um, what, a, you know. Let's let's chat about it. We and especially like we don't we don't have a lot of like great insider info from from camp. We try to not like, you know, um, scoop uh, scoop our friends in other various places. But uh, if anybody knows anything, like give us a, give us a tip. <laughs> yeah, um, and and to go on with that, if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Uh, give us a five star rating on you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to the pod, you know, really helps share what we do with uh, other Northwestern fans and other fans around the country. I mean, we have a lot of fun doing this and, um, you know, we've gotten a lot of really, really good feedback. Uh, so yeah, tell a friend, um, hook someone else up with, with the pod. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, so we'll go ahead and leave it there for tonight. Uh, head to our website, westlotpirates.com, where you can leave comments and questions. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at westlotpirates. And you can email the show, westlotpirates at gmail.com. Tune in next time as we give our visceral and statistical views on Northwestern athletics. Look for us in the west side of Ryan Field flying the red pirate flag because we give no quarter, especially the fourth. For John Lacombe and Eric Skousby, I'm Sam Walter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.